0: congratulations. You may now turn your tassels. You're listening. You're listening to the.
1: Oh, if we say it at the same time.
0: No, we can't do that.
1: You're listening to the Day After Graduation podcast from Longwood University.
0: Welcome back to the Day After Graduation podcast. I'm Ryan Catherwood. In today's episode, Searching we're sharing two stories from Longwood alumni who are both seeking to learn more about family members that are no longer in their lives or who have only recently returned. In both stories, we find alumni on a journey to discover more about themselves by reconnecting with parents, both literally by meeting up again, or more symbolically by learning more about the central stories that shape their lives. In act one of today's episode, Return to Normandy, we find Dr. Donna Gibson, class of 1972, Producer Megan Wilson picks up the story from here.
2: Around the time Donna Gibson was considering where to go to college, she visited her sister, who was a Longwood student at the time. Naturally,
1: after visiting, Donna decided to be the perfect spot for her as well. My older sister, Barbara, had gone to Longwood, and she was she's about eight years older than I am. And so I had visited the campus. I loved the feeling of it. Donna majored in biology, and had a long, successful career in the field.
2: She's worked in both the public and private sectors. She's won awards, and her research and findings made a huge difference on the world. She retired about two years ago, and upon her retirement, she decided to study something that had always sparked her interest. She was searching for answers surrounding her father's experience in World War
1: II. As you're growing up, you know it's your dad. You don't really think much about it. He was in World War II. We knew a little bit, but not very much. I mean, very common for men of that generation, they were silent about many of the things that they did during the war. You know, by the time he died in 96, we had uncovered from him the fact that he was the sole survivor during the day. And so that really piqued my interest. My father was the, the communication sergeant on the, it's called a LCT, which is a landing craft transport. And that was bringing in the four tanks in his A company. They were coming in on shore and basically the tanks were coming in right after the uh, initial landing of troops. And so they were supposed to sort of land simultaneously so the tanks could provide cover for the infantry. And so the area had been swept for mines. And so I guess they they weren't really anticipating any problems. Well, that didn't happen. Dad's tank, uh the LCT on which he was on, had a massive mine. He was thrown overboard about 75 yards away. The tanks that were on the LCT were, you know, twisting and tumbling about a hundred feet into the air. And so everyone else around, and you know, the 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 other LCTs coming in with the other tanks and the companies. You know, I'm sure it was very frightening to see this this one LCT end up in the air. You know, Dad tried to, he swam back, tried to see if anyone else had survived. He ended up being the only survivor. So there were 16 A-Company members that were aboard that, that particular LCT. None of those survived. Some of the Navy crew that were aboard also did not survive. There were two Navy men that did survive. And so basically, knowing that I wouldn't be here except for that really struck me when I was there. And the only thing that the reason why Dad kept the watch is that it had stopped at 546 a.m. when he was on top of the, the turret to break radio silence. They were supposed to break it at 6 a.m. right before they, they landed on shore. And because he was on top, that's the only reason he survived. Everyone else on the LCT, which probably floats about a foot or two above the water, was killed instantly from the mine. So it sent me on a journey. It really struck me while I was in Normandy, who were those men? And the great sense of guilt that I think my father had.
2: Donna and her sisters wanted to see what their father had experienced. They wanted to see the beach where it all happened. They wanted to feel what he felt and see what he saw. It all kicked off after they found a piece of memorabilia from their father at a museum in France.
1: She's the one who really put this idea into all of our heads and investigated and checked it out. And so she's really the instigator of doing this and she was prompted by her daughter who had visited the Normandy area and had actually discovered that there was something from our dad in one of the museums something that dad had always told us he had sent but we never knew what happened to it and it's a watch that's particularly there so we decided we were going to go and there we went. I mean my sisters had never, one of them had never been overseas before so that was an adventure for her. As you get older, you get more introspective. And part of me wanted to experience as much as possible what my father had been through. And the only way to do that sometimes is to go to an area to really get the feel of the geography and the, the sense of place that you can only discover really through travel. And my dad had always wanted to go back, his health, his uh, arthritis had basically prevented him from being very mobile later in life when he started to express the interest of going back. So part of it is going back to honor his own memory and to feel like we took him with us. Donna and her sisters all met up in Virginia and took off for France.
2: After the bus ride out from Paris to Normandy, they found a beautiful
1: countryside and warm, welcoming people. I just really wanted to... feel what it must have been like for D-Day. So one of the first things I did that next morning is I got up at 5.30 and I walked outside along the beach because I just wanted to get a sense of what it must have felt like coming in. You know, these amphibious vehicles are already out in the water and coming into the beach and the beaches are very shallow, And so at low tide, it it goes out for yards, but by high tide, you know, it's really close to shore. And so all of those German fortifications are visible at low tide, completely underwater at high tide. So you, you, you really get the sense of what it must have felt like coming into shore. What happened is that they had they had received Dad's watch many years before when they had originally asked for items to be sent in by US soldiers to the to a recently formed Utah Beach Museum. And so they awarded all three of us diplomas and made us honorary citizens of Utah Beach and Saint Marie Dumont, which is the small village that's located at Utah Beach. And it was a very moving ceremony. Uh, They gave us honorary medals. It was, we had tears (laughs) in our eyes holding my dad's watch because we hadn't seen it for years. My dad carried it as a memento all during the war to remind him himself how lucky he was.
2: Donna is now working to find some of the families of those on the LCT who passed away. She wants to help honor their sacrifice and pull a full story together in her father's memory.
1: Well, I have two definites. I have one of the fellows, I found a a book entitled Strike Swiftly. It's the story of the 70th Tank Battalion of which dad was a member. And so his best friends were located on the adjacent LCT coming in, and their friends assumed that dad and uh, Corporal Don Neal had been killed. It turns out Dad was the sole survivor, so Corporal Don Neal is a definite. What people sometimes forget is the military is really like a family. In the 70th Tank Battalion, Dad used to say they were closer to him, his comrades were closer to him than his own brothers. And I think that's probably true of anyone who's served in those sorts of combat situations. You fight for the guy next to you. Yes, you're fighting for your country, but you're really fighting for the people that you value in your life.
0: It's great to hear about Donna looking into the past and working to uncover these stories and help share what she's finding along the way. Thanks to Megan Wilson and Dr. Donna Gibson for that story. After this break, we'll dive into another story about searching in Act 2. Now we've arrived at Act 2 of the show. It's biological. One of the searches that some adopted children go through is finding their biological parents. For some, it happens in childhood, while for others it happens much later in life. This story takes us on Tom Harrison's journey and life story. Tom is a Longwood alum class of 1989. Again, Megan Wilson with the story.
2: It all started when Thomas settled down in Richmond. He knew he wanted to start a family of his own. Before he did, he felt compelled to learn about the other family he had. Before 23andMe and Ancestry.com, Thomas headed to the Department of Social Services to ask for information about his family. At first, he asked for non-identifying information, which is a safe thing to do if you don't want to actually meet your family members. That information didn't last long. As soon as he had it, he wanted more. Thomas eventually asked for the full gamut and learned about his mother and father, his biological parents.
3: I uh, went to social services. They actually did all the legwork for me. They contacted my mom's, my biological mom's, brother. And they're like, Hey, this is blah, blah, blah. We're calling. He goes, well, I know where you're calling. He goes, let me get you in touch with my sister. So, cause I don't think many people knew about me. So, but it was one of these things that everybody's very respectful where now I think where you can kind of go online and find things back then. It's like, You go through all these little pieces of paper and go, okay, well, this is such and such person. And, all right, let's go through the yellow pages. You know, I'm like, oh, my God, it has to be impossible. So they contacted her to ask permission whether I could have information because they gave me the non-identifying information. But I said, I need to know more because everything that I need to know is blacked out. I kind of wanted to know, like, between the lines of, like, what and when and why she gave me a book. Not that it necessarily fulfilled all those questions, but it uh, it kind of filled in a lot of spaces. So what they did is they contacted her. She gave permission for them to give me the rest of the information. So the thing is, and I tell everybody, it's like Pandora's box. You know, I said, be careful what you ask for, because like some mothers and fathers, you know, you contact them and they're like, you know, that's like a part of my life. I don't want to ever revisit. So it either can be really cool or it could suck. So, but she's like, no, I want to, you know, get in touch. So she sent me a letter and I sent her a letter back. I'm like, and I was very standoffish, but she was very respectful, which I think because she was respectful, it kind of. Made me want to know more. Didn't have any money. So I went to a, uh, like a rent a car place and I said, hey, can I borrow a car? Drove over to where she was at. She did not know I was coming. So, but I actually asked them to send me out to San Francisco because I was interested to see what she looked like, because I just want to see what she looked like. So I get there and I go roaming into the, uh, she worked at a crane place that rents cranes. And she was like essentially the only person in there. She's kind of like a glorified secretary, I guess. And I see her and I knew exactly it was her. You just could tell. She's, I don't know, she kind of looked like me, kind of darker skin tone, darker hair. She was so sweet, so I knew that she had to be related. Um, So I'm like, talk to her. And the funny thing was, I'm like asking her, because I didn't know what to say. So I started asking her about cranes. And she goes, well, what kind of crane do you need? And I'm like, a big crane? And and then she goes, "She goes, okay, well, what is it for? I'm like, I had no idea. So I'm like, to put an HP. Back on top of a building. She goes, Well, how big is HVAC? I'm like, Very big. She, ge- she goes, Okay, well, how big is the building? I'm like, Very big. I'm like, So she goes, Well, where is it? I'm like, Way over there. I'm like, So finally, I'm like, All right, I gotta go. <laughs> I'm like, It's a pleasure to see you. And I'm like, So I left. And th- then I sent her a card. I sent her a postcard and gone, Hey, it was a pleasure meeting you. And I came back, and we just kind of corresponded from there. So she came back uh, to Richmond from San Francisco, and we met at a little pizza joint. And um, it was kind of weird because I didn't, you know, what do you say to somebody? I'm like, "Hey, we've been doing for thirty some years," you know. And she didn't know what to say either. So we just kind of sat there, and we were supposed to eat dinner. We never ate dinner because we kept ordering beers and we're like, Hey, can we have another round? I'm like, don't know what to say. Can, you know, another round, please. So we ended up getting really, really drunk. And that was kind of our first encounter of meeting here in Richmond. And uh, it was, it was a little weird, probably a little unorthodox, but it kind of loosened us up because I was nervous. I didn't know what to say. And then the next day, she goes, hey, you want to meet your biological dad? I'm like, mm, just don't tell me who I am. I said, I'll go, but just don't tell him who I am. So they went to the engineer's club, come rolling on up there. It's me and her, and I'm standing with her, and then all of a sudden he starts crying. I'm like, oh, my God. So he knew exactly who it was. I was just going to sit there and just kind of, you know, feel him out, see who everybody is and their dynamics and things like that. And Well kind of blew that one.
2: Tom met his parents later on in life. He was getting married, had his own business, and his life was already on its own path. So bringing in his biological parents created some new challenges to deal with.
3: So fast forward, went to the restaurant, opened the bar, and then that's when I got married. And then I invited them my biological parents to come to the wedding, which was weird because I never told my parents that raised me about my biological parents. My dad, because he had broken his back, couldn't do a lot of things that he probably really wanted to do. So I never wanted to take anything away from him. So I, I never wanted him to feel like somebody was stepping into his shoes. Very try to be as much respectful of him as possible. My mom, I'm like, eh, she'll get over it. But my dad, I was so worried about. And so I never really told them. In fact, there's one time where I went, I'm like, all right, well I'll just I'll just bite the bullet and introduce my biological mom to my mom and we met up near Roanoke. And, uh, and my mom had brought all these friends with her and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm like, I just wanted this little intimate meeting. blah. blah. So my biological mom showed up and we all sat around and had lunch one day. And it was, it was the weirdest thing. Cause my biological mom knew who my mom that raised me was but my mom that raised me didn't know that was my biological mom so at some point during the uh the lunch she goes well, how do y'all know each other i'm like i just i don't know dark alleys i don't i don't know i i didn't know what to say so that was their first encounter but nobody really got introduced because i didn't i thought it was more of a private thing so they didn't really meet till the wedding And then at that point, I'm like, well, what am I going to do now? I'm like, I can't just kind of have these people here and go, well, who's the people over in the corner just kind of like staring at you? And then, you know, you do the family photos. So there's a lot of these type of things that like most people kind of take for granted. But you have these family photos. I'm like, all right, well, I want to do a photo with everybody, your whole family. And I'm like, OK, well, are these your family or these not your family? And then. It was a little crazy. My biological dad was here in Richmond, so I would see him somewhat a lot. The problem is he was trying to make up for lost time, which is not his fault. But I also, I think because he was so pressury and wanting to uh, meet that I kind of was more standoffish. So, he was actually in the same field which I'm in now in building and general contracting, that type of thing. Alle versus, you know, nature versus nurture. You know, am I... So, and then my... I am. um, Is it because, you know, he used to build or, you know, that type of thing. So, and then my biological mom, I kind of just stayed in touch with her and she moved to Florida and then I uh, would just kind of fly down and meet with her but she was just kind of a kind soul and so it was very easy to relate to her talk to her i just loved her i just thought she was just a lovely lady for you know for somebody you never met because i kind of some people are like Oh, this is my biological brother or sister. So all of a sudden, they're automatic family. I'm just not like that. My family is kind of whoever I lay my hat with. And uh so, as weird as it may sound, I like less and less people all the time. But the people I do like, I love more and more. So I'll find somebody and I'll gravitate towards them for whatever reason, like a connection or something like that. And then I just will just... But if I don't like you, yeah, I will hang out with you.
2: One of the things any child that grows up in an adoptive family wonders is, why was I giving up? What was going on that led to that decision? And Tom had the unique opportunity to walk through that.
3: My biological mom was sick. So I would fly down to Florida and take care of her. She smoked, which is very bad. And, um, and she would be on, you know oxygen and things like that. And she'll take morphine and then she could breathe again. And then she'd go out and have a cigarette and blah, blah, blah. So I think there's a certain sense of like, everything comes around where I kind of fulfilled where she never knew. She just kind of hoped I turned out and I would ask her, I'm like, Hey, you know, are you happy with what you found or not? You know, are you, am I a disappointment? You know, you kind of, cause you don't know. So, towards kind of like the end of her life, I would fly down to Florida like every month to take care of her, make sure she was okay for about a week every month. And she, her husband had Alzheimer's and so she was doing like this video and she's like, hey, I have all these questions um, to kind of map out his life. Were there any questions for me? And I said, no, I figure if there's anything you wanted to know, you would tell me. But then I was thinking like, what a gift. Because it's not like many times you go hey, mom, by the way, blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, okay. So I made up a list because I'm a list person. And uh, and I said, you know, everything from like, what's your favorite color? Because I have no idea. To like, did you think about me on my birthday? Or did you just kind of like, just hope I was okay? You know, how how does it work? I don't know. And so I sent it to her. And I said, okay, you're going to respond? And she's like, well, I don't want to upset anybody. So how about the next time you come down, we'll sit by the pool, we'll have a drink, and we'll talk about it. So that's what we did. And she went through like every question, question by question, just kind of like answering. Some of them were easy and some of them were hard. And But it was kind of an odd relationship because there's no bullshit about it. I mean, by the time I met her, I was older. So, um, you know, I kind of explained to her, I said, you know, you may not have liked me when I was younger. And she goes, well, you probably wouldn't have liked me when I was younger. However, with that being said, it was kind of, we kind of understood that there was a limited amount of time. So we didn't get into uh, probably the protocols that you probably would have with any normal relationship. We just kind of cut to the chase. Like this is what I need to know, this is what I need to do, this is whatever, and because um, knew life was too short, and we wasted all this time, so therefore let's just cut to the chase and and that's what we did. Well, it was hard, and i didn't to be honest with you I didn't expect to love either one of them. I didn't expect to love her as much as I did.
2: It's a pretty scary thing to seek out and discover a part of yourself you may love or hate. Tom went head first when he decided he needed to cross this bucket list item off. As a grown man, he made himself vulnerable, but he was still really brave. I think that inner conflict is something we can all learn from. Whether it's taking a big risk in pursuing a career or starting a new relationship, those emotional fumbles and misconceptions are always familiar, though uncomfortable.
0: Thanks to Megan and Tom Harrison for that story. We hope you enjoyed both acts in today's episode featuring Longwood alumni going on unique journeys and asking questions that most wouldn't. We hope this inspires you to look around and see what you're searching for and what you might want to do with your life. That wraps up this episode. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to our feed through Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you might get your podcasts. Our podcast is produced by Cordy Walker, Ryan Catherwood, Paige Rollins, Megan Wilson, and the Office of Alumni and Career Services at Longwood University. If you have a story you would like to share that would be great for the podcast, please let us know about it. Email career at longwood.edu. See you next week for another edition of the Day After Graduation podcast.